0: Good evening. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here and to worship with you. I consider it a blessing to be with the Peak Congregation tonight. It seems like it's been a while since we've been privileged to worship here, and we appreciate this opportunity tonight. I appreciate all that's been shared already. The songs I thought fit well, and Brother Nick, your devotion fit in quite well with what we have to share with you tonight. I guess this evening's message isn't your typical platitudes of New Year's resolutions. I'm thinking of going, I felt the Spirit lead me in a little different direction than that, and I hope you can uh, appreciate the way I felt the Spirit lead. And I feel like in many ways I'm preaching to myself. I'll say it a little bit this way. Brother Nick was talking about, we make these resolutions or we make commitments to do better. And just for example, let's say we're going to say, all right, this year I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to help in the kitchen more. I'm going to uh, vacuum or I'm going to help set the table or, or whatever. And we make this list and we try to keep it. Or we could make a resolution that in this year, I'm going to make it my goal to love my wife the way Jesus loves the church. And we're going to actually cover all those things without having to make a list. It's going to be the normal outflow of a deeper love. And let's apply that to our spiritual lives. Let's say we make a list. Okay, I'm going to do extra. I'm going to make sure to have devotions. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to do this and this and this. Or we could say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I'll follow you anywhere you lead and we're going to cover those things and not because it's on a list but because we're in a fervent relationship with our Lord and Savior and that's more what I have in mind to share this evening so i'd like to start with three questions and uh, let you think about those a bit three questions for each of us to entertain in our own minds number 1 are you content are you content Contentment is being at peace with one's lot and one's means in life. What God has allowed you to have, where God has called you to be. Are we content? Apostle Paul said, I speak not of want and respect of want, for I've learned that whatever state I am therewith to be content. So he had learned contentment. And I believe contentment is something that we need to learn. It's not something that comes natural. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. And everywhere in all things I'm instructed to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things how? Through Christ who strengthens me. That was the secret of Paul's contentment, was the essence of the work and the provision of Jesus Christ in his life. Paul writes again to Timothy. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Are we content with our lot and our provision that God has provided for us? Because he goes on to say that those who desire to be rich will fall into many foolish desires and hurtful lusts and snares and drowning and, and all those things that are not good. He says, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, Godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, for unto thou was called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Calling to a deeper relationship. But then in Hebrews he writes again, And let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So, in all these passages, what is the source of our contentment? It is our position and our provision in Jesus Christ that brings contentment. All right, the second question for us to entertain is this Are you complacent? What's that word mean? Complacent is to be self satisfied with our own accomplishments. What does complacency look like? And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, thou art neither cold nor hot, I wert thou either cold or hot. Then, so then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So the difference between contentment and complacency is complacency is born out of our perception of our ability to be what we want to be. And we are complacent in the fact that we don't want to go beyond that. We're not willing to follow God out into the unknown and to go deeper with Him in our relationships. We are complacent. They said here we're rich We have all we need. We don't need anything. And he said, in reality, if you could see yourself from my perspective, God is saying, Jesus Christ through the angel, you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. And what's the answer in verse 18? He says, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. Thou mayest be rich, and white raiment thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest be seen. As many as I love and rebuke, and chasten be zealous therefore and repent the answer is to be zealous to be fervent to be earnest and to repent of our complacency and say God what would you have me to do and to move forward with him the third question is this are we fervently in love with Jesus Christ are we fervently in love with Jesus Christ Revelation 2, and to the church's angel of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Notice what they were doing at church. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience. And how thou canst cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them, but say they are apostles, and are not, and found them liars. Thou hast borne, thou hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. The church was working hard. They were testing out the false teachers and, and getting them out of the way, and they were bearing the, the heat and, uh, bearing the burden in the heat of the day, and they were patient, and they labored, and they didn't give up. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Are we fervently in love with Jesus Christ? What is first love? You want to have a, a concise definition for us? What is first love? Well, let me tell you a story, and then you see if you know what first love is. Some time ago, a week or two ago, we had a couple from Vietnam come and stay in our rental house, and his last name was Hildebrand, which sparked our interest because my wife and children have Hildebrand blood in them through Wilda, Mrs. Hired Showalter. So we told him we wanted to meet with them and find out if we were related, so we did. We met with him. He's an American man, uh, looks like a Hildebrand, but I don't think we're close, Ken. His ancestors were from West Virginia and, and New Jersey. But his father was Brian Hildebrand, who was a brethren preacher for 30 to 40 years in this area and affiliated with Bridgewater College. Anyhow, we were visiting with them, and it was uh, Robert and his wife, Hoon, and their three children. And a beautiful little lady and three lovely children. And uh, she is Vietnamese. And early on in the conversation, he said to me, in the presence of all of us, he said, my wife is a young Christian. She's in instruction class preparing for baptism. So all eyes turned to her standing there. And she said, I'm hungry. I'm hungry her english is good but broken and that was her testimony of where she's at with jesus i'm hungry that is first love that is first love that just insatiable desire for more of jesus christ how is our first love beginning of 2024 She was so happy that we were Christians, she just hugged my wife and held her hand and visited and they said they're coming back. So we're looking forward to that. But anyhow, that is first love. This church had left their first love. What do we do when our love for Jesus isn't what it ought to be? Coming into a new year, when we want to make better starts and to do better in the coming 12 months that we have before us. What should we do? Verse 5, Revelation 2. Therefore, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. Remember what it was like when you first come to know Christ and you had that fervent love. Reflect back on that. Go back there and repent. The word repent is several times in this one verse. Repent and do the first works. Can go back there and love the Lord in that way. Or else I will come quickly and remove that candlestick out of his place except thou repent. And he goes on in both those passages, he said, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And he that responds will eat from the tree of life in eternity. The promise for those who repent and come back to their first love. Those who walk away from their complacency and and, uh, self-sufficiency and realize, as Brother Nick shared with us, we need to fall before God and surrender and say, You are everything. I want to follow you. So, how did we do on these three questions? Am I content with what God has provided in my life and where he's leading? Or am I complacent and feel self-sufficient? Am I fervently in love with Jesus Christ and using that as a basis to move into this year to serve him better and serve my fellow man with more fervency and more love? If we are satisfied where we're at spiritually, we're lukewarm, the scripture tells us. We are complacent. If we're satisfied with where we're at spiritually, we are not walking close enough to Jesus to see ourselves for who we really are. As the scripture said, if you can see yourself from, from my perspective, Jesus is saying, you'll realize that you have needs. Throughout the Bible, when people, godly people, caught a glimpse of who God is and the and the holiness of God and the, the power and the glory of God, they always said, Woe is me. I'm nothing. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. When he caught a glimpse of God, he saw the need in his life and in his people. Job. Job and his comforters, interchanged back and forth and back and forth throughout the book of Job. And they'd say, Job, you have to have sin in your life. And Job said, I ah, actually am a pretty good fella." And they were back and forth and back and forth. And towards the end of the book, God began to speak to Job and ask Job questions. And Job said, and I can't quote it exactly, but, but when I got a glimpse of who God is, I had to put my hand over my mouth. He realized he wasn't the man he thought he was when he got a glimpse of God. Ezekiel got a vision of God and seen his wickedness. Abram fell on his face before God. Moses trembled on Mount Sinai when, he, when God conversed with him. And the people of Israel stood back and watched the mountain of, of Sinai and the smoke and the thundering. And they said, Moses, you talk to God and come tell us what he said. We don't want to be in the presence of this God because we realize who we are when we see a glimpse of him. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration fell down. When they've seen the light of the glorified Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus was traveling along, and he seen this light, he said, brighter than the noonday sun. And I've been reading about that in another book. And they said for people who travel that the Middle East is an area where the noonday sun requires sunglasses. Something about the desert and the heat and the reflection, that if there's anywhere in the world you need sunglasses and in the noonday sun, it's in the Middle East. And that's interesting. You go through the scripture in number of places. It says that the glory of the Lord is brighter than the noonday sun. It's something those people understood better than we do. And Saul was was smitten to the ground by that light. And I believe he caught a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. That's why he called himself an apostle. And he lay there on the ground. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Lord, what will you have me to do? Catching a glimpse of God brings us to the end of ourselves and I ask that question have we ever came to that point in our lives God what will you have me to do whatever I'm here before you on the ground completely open to God completely open to his will for our lives I believe apostle Paul knew about God before the Damascus Road experience he knew a lot about God That's why he was such an effective minister coming right out of his conversion because he could go and prove that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies because he knew so much about God. But in the time period between seeing the blinding light on the road, and I believe it was three days before Ananias came and baptized him, he received his sight. I believe in that three-day period, Paul began to learn to know God. He knew about God then he began to learn to know God and see there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God and that made all the difference in the rest of the days of his life so do we know about God or do we know God and in the year ahead do we desire to know him more fervently and more intimately I felt led to use this paper this evening for a few points, and they're here and down here, so all of you in the back, if you want to move up front so you can read it, you can. But I'll leave it here, maybe sneak it in the back sometime and read it back there. But I'd like to just think a little bit about this paper, and I have to admit I got a little surprised this morning, I would forgot what the title was of the message when the, the committee called, and uh, I would came up with a different title, and my title is A Godly Discontentment. Now, that's a play on words, but it's a godly discontentment. You can use whatever you want back in the back for the recording, but uh, through this, I like this. It talks about the fact that if we want to make a difference, if we want to make a change, it has to start with us individually. Churches experience revival through individuals who experience revival. It starts one person at a time i like the slogan i forget what company it was you served dairy products they said they were changing the world one herd at a time god changes the world one soul at a time and he calls us to embrace that change any christian who desires to may at any time experience a radical spiritual renaissance and this altogether independent of the attitude of his fellow christians the most important question is how well, here's some suggestions which anyone can follow and which I'm convinced will result in a wonderfully improved Christian life. And number one is get thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself, a godly discontentment. A contented soul is a stagnant soul. When speaking of earthly goods, Paul could say, I've learned to be content. But when referring to his spiritual life, he testified, I press on toward the mark to stir up the gift to God that is in me. So yes, Apostle Paul was contented with his suffering and his meager possessions in life, but he was not contented with his current relationship and always wanted to go deeper and deeper with God. Number two, it says, set your face like a flint toward a sweeping transformation of your life. And I believe that's deeper than a uh, resolution and even deeper than a goal, but setting your face... toward a a sweeping transformation of your life. Number three, put yourself in the way of blessing. How do we do that? Living in obedience to the word of God. When we live in obedience, when God speaks and says, take this step and take this step and take this step, as we take those steps, we are walking in the path of obedience, which is the way of blessing. And often I find God doesn't uh, show us the steps way out in advance. He wants us to, in faith, take the step that he shows us, and the next step, and the next step. God doesn't open doors when we're out on the sidewalk. He generally opens a door when we're up on the door seal. But he, he expects us to walk in faith till we get to the door, and he opens it for us. Do a thorough job of repenting. Do you notice how many times in the book of Revelation, those two passages that we were called to repent of lukewarmness or, rep- or a complacency or lack of love repent i like the fact i'm not sure which group it is maybe one of the river brethren groups or something like that when they speak of a young person uh coming to faith in christ they say so and so started repenting because they recognize the life of christianity is a life that entails repentance they started repenting (laughs) yeah Make restitution wherever possible. If I wronged someone, do what I can to make it right. Bring your life into accord with the Sermon on the Mount. I believe the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Be serious-minded. This is a good one for our day. This paper is really old. This is a good one for us. If you spend any time at all on social media, there's a lot there that's not serious-minded. And I admit I'm grieved when i see some of our people put up uh, things that poke fun at people that God has allowed to serve in certain positions in government or life. Let's not have that testimony in our lives. Let's be serious. It says, if you continue to look at the funny boys, you will not have a deep spiritual experience. There must be a permanent improvement in our interior life to walk close with God deliberately narrow your interest. The jack of all trades is a master of none. And it goes on to talk about the fact that it's important to focus on Jesus and narrow our lives to that which would please him. Narrow your interest to that which would please God. Begin to witness to others if we're not doing it. I remember the first time or two that I went to Washington DC or places like that to do street ministry and you're kind of riding up the road on the bus and you're if you're like me, he was worried, what if people ask me hard questions and I don't have the answers? That bothered me. But that's good exercise for our faith. Put yourself in the way of witnessing. Allow, Share Jesus Christ with others and let those questions come. And if we don't know the answers, go home and dig and find them. Begin to witness. It's a good experience. Share Jesus Christ with those around us. And last but not least, have faith in God. Begin to expect. Look up. The prayer of Jabez. Have you ever read that little book? He said, expand my territory. And what he meant was he didn't want another farm. He was saying, I want to have more opportunities to witness and to share God. It's a little book you can read in about an hour. It's a good book to read. The prayer of Jabez. Have faith in God. Begin to expect. Anticipate God doing things in your life and through your life. Look up towards the throne. Look towards our advocate, Jesus Christ. He's at God's right hand. All heaven is on our side. All heaven is on our side to share Jesus Christ with others. If you follow these suggestions, you will most surely experience a revival in your own heart. And who can tell how far it may spread? God knows how desperately the church needs a spiritual resurrection and only can come through one revived individual at a time. What did this look like in Apostle Paul's life? I invite you, if you turn with me, if you'd like to, to Philippians, the third chapter. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll drop in at verse 7. And he's looking back on his, on his life, his pedigree, uh, all the things that he had aspired to and accomplished before meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he said, all these things were gained to me, I've counted as loss for Christ." Not that they weren't of any value. Paul's education, his knowledge of the Old Testament, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee, uh, having a Roman citizenship, all of that was tremendous blessing and opportunity for him to use it to build the kingdom. But he said, those things are not what my value is based on anymore. My value is is in Jesus Christ, and I've surrendered all those things to him. Yea, doubtless I count all these things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, do count them but dung that I may win Christ. A singular vision. Paul had narrowed down, as this paper talks about, he had narrowed down the aspirations of his life to a singular vision of serving God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I want to be found in him not having mine own righteousness what he had pursued all the years before, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now verse 10, that I may know him. You know, we talked about Paul had known about God, but now he's knowing God. And I don't know at what point in his spiritual pilgrimage he wrote this book of Philippians, but more likely it was on towards the latter part. And he said, my, the drive of my life is to know him and to know him better. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And he understood that with the power of the resurrection also came the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. We do not separate the glorious power of Jesus Christ from the suffering and the persecution that goes with it. The scripture says, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There will be pushback. But Paul said... And that is joy. That's what I want. I want more. He just wanted more and more of Jesus. Just like that young lady said, I'm hungry. Paul wanted more of Jesus Christ. Do we want more of Jesus Christ in 2024 in our lives? That I may know him. And if any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Looking to that resurrection of going uh, and the the changed body in being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Not as though I would already attained, either already perfect, but I follow after that, which I may apprehend that, for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. That's a verse that's a little bit of a tongue twister, but I believe what it's saying is I press toward the goal of wanting to lay hold of in my life what Jesus Christ has reached down in and laid hold of. If that makes sense. In other words, Paul understood that Jesus had reached into his life and had a purpose and a pur- and a reason for everything there. And he's saying, I want to embrace that. I want to understand that. I want to embrace that and walk by faith in that. Jesus apprehended me and I want to be part of that. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and he doesn't stop there and he says and let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded perfect there means spiritually mature so he's saying if we're striving for spiritual maturity in 2024 and we want to move beyond where we've been in the past this should be our testimony as well that's part of spiritual maturity I have some quotes written in the front of my Bible. I like this one. Humility is the only soil that the fruit of the Spirit can grow in. Humility is the only soil that the fruit of the Spirit can grow in. See, Romans 6 and also Jesus in the Gospels told us that to identify with Christ in the way that Paul is talking about here, it comes through a death. It comes through the burial of a seed in the soil. And that seed dies and decays, but out of that death, there comes a new life. And that's the resurrected life in Jesus Christ. We identify with him in his death because that's the only way we can identify with him in the power of his resurrection. A godly discontentment. I was thinking, what are some examples in the scripture of that? And you maybe think of ones that I didn't. How about the man in the Gospels who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. I like that man. Lord, I believe, but just help me in areas where I'm still struggling. How about the disciples when they observed Jesus praying, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They seen something there that they wanted for themselves. There was a discontentment in their prayer life. How about Peter when he said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. How about the book of Revelation where it says, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come, Lord Jesus. A discontentment. Wanting more. Wanting more. You know, one of the wonderful benefits of observing our own lives in the light of God's holiness is that the fear of the Lord becomes very real in our lives. The fear of the Lord. Andrew gave me a book for Christmas. I'm enjoying reading The Awe of God. And uh, don't worry, I won't read all these. But there are 20, look here, there are 27 times in our Bibles that the term the fear of the Lord is used. And it's nearly always used in a positive connotation. Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, you go on and you can add on. Job said the fear of the Lord is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord and wisdom are inseparable. You'll notice that if you read through those 27 verses. You'll notice also that there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in Proverbs where the fear of the Lord is a protection. The fear of the Lord brings protection. And the last time we find the term of the fear of the Lord is in Acts nine thirty one, and I like that one. And then the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and were multiplied. I would like that to be our experience. The churches had rest. There was obviously peace. They were edified. They were being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. They had the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And they were multiplying. It means they were growing spiritually and in numbers. Now, several passages of Scripture, what the child of God, who is in a fervent relationship with Jesus Christ, should and should not be doing. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, the fifth chapter. 2 Timothy, the fifth chapter. Excuse me, 2 Timothy doesn't have a fifth chapter, 2 Timothy, the second chapter. That's better. Notice these instructions as an older man to a younger Christian. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Number one, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Number two, what should we do? Transmit to others who can also transmit to other people yet even beyond you. And things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others. That multiplication that we just talked about in the book of Acts, sharing with someone else and they share with someone else, getting it out there. Now, the lifestyle of the one who witnesses. Verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure the hardships, endure the afflictions, endure the ridicule, Endure the persecution if it comes. How? As a soldier of Jesus Christ. See, a good soldier doesn't turn back and he never abandons another soldier. He keeps on serving, regardless, irregardless of the effect on his own life. Verse 4, no man that warreth entangled himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We are resident aliens here on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. We're only passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we are instructed as New Testament saints not to get entangled with the affairs of this world. Why? Because we are living to please our commander-in-chief of the spiritual army that we're in, the Christian the body of Christ the church and we live on a different level there's a book i have at home that i like it's called anabaptism in outline and you can open it up and it'll have topics and then you go to wherever that topic begins and it has writings from different writers early anabaptist writers on that subject and for some studies i've done and I'm currently doing again it has a it has a section on government and i appreciate it the first writing there says The governments of this world are outside of the perfection of Jesus Christ. The governments of this world are outside of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, they said, we relate to government the same, whether it be benevolent or tyrannical. In other words, their relationship with the government didn't change based on who was in office because they understood that their relationship with Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus Christ was so much of a higher calling, so much of a higher purpose, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ has transcended every government from the day it was birthed until the Lord comes back. Nations come and go, governments come and go, but the, but the church of Jesus Christ will march triumphant into eternity. And a lot of times, the more resistance a government gives to it, the stronger the church is. So keep our eyes on Jesus in 2024, Brother Jake covered it good for us this morning. It's an election year. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God is in control. Don't get sidetracked because to step into that realm is to leave the perfection of Christ. Endure hardship. Do not become entangled with the affairs of this world. We must live by God's standard. If a man strive for masteries, yet is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Follow the word of God. 2 Peter, the third chapter. 2 Peter, the third chapter. You know we all need Revival. And I said at Bank Church, I've had the privilege of preaching at Bank on the 31st of December. And I said, I don't ever remember if I preached on the last day of the year before. So it was sort sort of a reflection, a little bit of a looking forward type of approach. But I said, I'm glad that we have a calendar and that we have New Year's. What if it was just we're in day... 222,000 and it just went on and on and on and it was we didn't have these changes and the new beginnings and the seasons and all that I'm glad we do because we need revival we need change we need to be stirred up and Peter wrote to the believers here and he said this second epistle beloved I write to you both to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance so they needed to be stirred up just like I do maybe it was new year's there I don't know that ye be mindful of the words which are spoken before the holy prophets and the commandment of us apostles, Lord of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first thou shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, and for this they were willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, and whereby the world that was then perished overflow was then being overflowed with water, perished. So it's just like it is now back then. They're saying, eh, y'all been saying the Lord's coming back for years. He hasn't came. I'm not sure I believe this. And Peter's saying, I'm stirring up your minds. Remember, this is what's coming. But the heaven and earth which are now in the same word are kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of godly men. Be, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, One day as the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We can't, my finite mind can't comprehend that to God, a year or a day and a thousand years can be one and the same. But that's God. And his ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. But notice verse 9. This is for us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So while God is counting days and we're counting thousands of years, or vice versa, he wants us to be taking that message of, of the gospel because God is not willing that any one person should perish and miss eternity in his presence. So let's be faithful. Instead of trying to figure out when he's coming, let's be busy when he shows up. That's what he wants us to do. Busy in the Lord's work. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Think about that. The elements in the earth will melt with fervent heat. I was trying to think, what would that look like? How about the big stone pillars on front of the supreme court or wherever they're going to melt with fervent heat they have elements in them in the day of the lord nick and i have chicken houses won't take long they'll be melted down so the question is how big a pile of molten elements do we want to collect in this life (laughs) that's where it's going to end up so what's really important Seeing that these things shall be dissolved, everything in life that we see around us is going to be dissolved. What matter of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You say, think about it. In light of what's going to happen, what's really important? What's important in life? Go out. You know, I was looking at verse 9 where it says that the Lord is not willing that any should, should perish. And I thought, you know, that's a good uh, companion verse to the Great Commission. You've got to make disciples of all people in all nations. How often do we look around and remind ourselves that everything that we're aspiring to and collecting is going to go away? And the only thing that we can take with us is the souls of those around us. That's the only thing of eternal value around us. How should this affect our lives? How should this affect our lives? Looking and hastening to the coming of the day of the Lord where the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements melt with fervent heat, nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him of him in peace without spot and blameless. I had never seen that before until I studied these verses again in the preparation for this message. It says, therefore, beloved, seeing we look for these things. I'd never noticed before, it looks like there's the idea that we're looking forward to that event, the day of the Lord. As Christians, we're looking forward to that. As an all in. And the count of long-suffering and the Lord of salvation. Yeah, it does look like here, two different spots that we would be looking forward to it. Yeah, verse 13, looking for the new heavens and a new earth, which is going to replace the melted earth, and looking for these things, looking for it, I'd say. Yes, are we looking forward to that? One more passage of Scripture, and we'll close for the evening. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I believe the life that is sold out to Christ will resemble the life that we're about to look at here in this chapter of 2 Corinthians 5. He begins this chapter by talking about being imprisoned in the tabernacle of this body and groaning for that release and he talks about laboring that whether we be absent or present we want to be with him we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ reminding us again of eternal perspective in life and now verse 11 knowing therefore the terror of the lord we persuade men but we are made manifest to god i trust also are made manifest your conscience for we commend ourselves again unto you but give you occasion to glory in our behalf that you may somewhat answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. So he says we're laboring on. We're continuing on in our, in our ministry. We want to please the Lord in our ministry. Now verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves it is for God. or whether we be sober it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all then all are dead. And I like this verse, constraineth. I may have shared with it about it here before. It's a unique word. It talks about the love of Christ constraining us. To constrain is to be held together, but yet given direction at the same time. One commentator said it's like being in a throng of people on a crowded sidewalk, and they're all moving in one direction, and you're in the middle, and you can't step to the right or left. You have to stay in step with the crowd. And he's saying, this is the love of Christ that is directing our lives and what is it doing it is telling us that he jesus died for all and that we which are still alive we which who know jesus as our lord and savior should not live any more for ourselves but we now live for him who died and rose again therefore we henceforth know no man after the flesh we view every soul we meet as one who needs jesus christ if any man is in christ he's a new creature and old things are passed away All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. So as we have transitioned from unbeliever to believer, and God has bestowed within us his Holy Spirit, he's also commissioned us with the responsibility of being an ambassador for him and sharing the message of reconciliation with everyone we meet. What is reconciliation? It's bringing a sinful mankind back into a right relationship with a holy God by the means of Jesus Christ and his cross. He said we are to view everyone in that way, that that is the need of their life and to share with them. And we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are responsible for the ministry of reconciliation and we are ambassadors representing the kingdom of Jesus Christ as resident aliens here in this world in which we live now then we as ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ did be reconciled for God for it made him to be sin or a sin offering for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. It's God's work, but he's given us the responsibility of joining him in it and being his hands and feet on this earth. He has given us the responsibility of bearing the message and living it out in everyday life. And he says, we pray you, we implore you. That's a pretty strong word. He said, we implore you to embrace this responsibility and to live it out in each day of our lives. It's about God's righteousness being represented on earth by his people, the church, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, are we there? Am I there? Can I do better in 24 than I did in 23? Do I have more room in my life to die (laughs) to self? Is there more room in my life? to experience more death, and out of that increased death, increased fruit? Romans 6. And is it urgent? Or should we think about it a month or two? I'll close with Romans 13. And that knowing the time that is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. May God bless you. In the year ahead.